didn't end up having to be utilized. But uh, at the same time, it was neat to see people doing that, people running out and getting coffee somewhere else, people taking care of trying to adjust the temperature in here through natural means, since we didn't have AC, people adjusting how they were planning on doing music and all sorts of things. So thank you to those of you who were doing that, although I guess the, the power issues we're having uh, did something interesting to the computer. So I don't think we're going to have slides uh, this morning, so uh, the screen today is just for decoration. Um, but we've been looking over the past few weeks uh, at the, the concept or the question of who is God. And we've been taking a look at a variety of things that the Scripture tell, tells us about God and about His nature. And uh, we, we've talked about the fact that God is unique. We've talked about God's Trinitarian nature. We looked at details related to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. We talked about God's omnipotence, His omnipresence, and His omniscience. And today we're continuing by looking at some additional attributes of God, or some people refer to them as perfections of God, and that's also a good term to use. And today specifically, we're talking about God's eternality, God's goodness, and God's grace. And we're going to look at a variety of scriptures that talk about these things, but one of the scriptures I want to just start off with is a short portion of scripture from Exodus 3. So we're going to start with Exodus 3. It'll be on page 46 if you're using the Bibles in front of you. And uh, we're just going to look at several verses there, and then we're going to jump around and look at a variety of related scriptures. But again, we're starting off with Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. And I'm just going to read from Exodus 3, verse 13, down to Exodus 3, verse 15. And this is what it says in this portion of God's Word. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to gather together today. We thank you, Lord, for the convenience of being able to meet together in this building, and we thank you, Lord, for the absolute luxury that it is to, to be able to worship you in a building with, with the luxury of flowing electricity. Lord, we tend to take all sorts of small blessings that you have allowed us to enjoy and experience in our day-to-day -day lives, we tend to take those things for granted until we experience just a brief moment without them. But Lord, we pray that in regard to our relationship with you, that we would not take you for granted. And today we pray that as we look at your eternality and what that means, and your goodness and what that means, and your grace, and as we discuss what that means as well, that our appreciation for who you are and for how you operate in our day-to-day -day lives would increase as a result of our time together worshiping you and studying your word. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So in just about everything we do, we're conscious of the time that it's going to take us to accomplish our task, no matter what it is, or, or even the appropriate time for which we should begin the task at the start. So today, you probably set an alarm to wake you up on time. Uh, today, uh, I'm sure most of us were watching the clock when we were getting ready this morning, and in particular, we watch the clock on work mornings because we want to make sure that we get out of the house on time and get to work on time. Uh, we use a calendar to help us keep track of upcoming appointments and, and uh, important dates and things of that nature. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate anniversaries as special milestones in our day-to-day -day lives. And everything we do tends to have some sort of a time component to it. But God is not constrained by time. You know, we, everything we do tends to have a time component to it, but time doesn't constrain God. He certainly operates within time, but he also lives outside of time. He is eternal in nature. And likewise, by nature, he's perfectly good and he's perfectly gracious. And so we, as beneficiaries of God's goodness and God's graciousness, can be grateful that he extends these perfections toward us because he delights to be good to us, and he delights to be gracious to us, and he delights to grant us eternal life as an undeserved gift. Now, right now, we're going to be taking a look at these attributes that I mentioned just a moment ago. We're going to look at God's eternality, we're going to look at his goodness, we're going to look at his grace, and when we're doing so, or as we're doing so, I want us to wrestle with what it looks like for God to extend the blessing and the utilization of these attributes toward us. And I want to start us off by looking at the eternality of God. And I'm going to share with us a couple scriptures. Like I said, I would have had slides for us that I could show, but, um, but the issues that we're having with our, with our uh, tech components as the electricity tripped the breakers and did some interesting things to our computer, we're not going to have that up there. So I'm just going to read these things for us. And I just want you to meditate on the variety of scriptures that I read for us this morning. Um, but in Psalm 102, verse 12, it says this, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. That's what the scripture says. It says, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, because we measure all sorts of things in time, and because we utilize time to kind of mark out or predict or just kind of function in our day-to-day -day lives, we're used to things having a beginning and an end. And because that's the case, when we talk about the fact that God is eternal, and when we talk about this perfection of God or this attribute of God that we call his eternality, I think that could be a very challenging concept for us to wrap our mind around. But the scriptures reveal to us that God is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about God having no beginning and no end, it's easier for me to think about the fact that God has no end than it is for me to try and wrap my mind around the fact that God has no beginning. But Scripture reveals to us He has no beginning and He has no end. 
He has always existed. He's always been. And he always will be. So that means that no matter how far into the past you could go, you would find God there. And no matter, no matter how hard or how far into the future you could press or go or visit, you would find God there as well. Now, a few moments ago, we read from Exodus chapter 3. And in Exodus chapter 3, God refers to himself as I am. And there's different ways that the Lord reveals uh, things about his nature through the names that he chooses to use. But I have to admit, when looking at the different names of God, the way he phrases or describes himself or, or tells us um, aspects of his nature by these different names that he reveals to us in Scripture, one of my favorite terms that he uses to describe himself is this one, where he just simply calls himself, I am. I think that's a very cool designation, a very interesting designation, a very unique way for God to describe himself that only God could use to describe himself. But he was revealing to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, by, by referring to himself as I am, what he's trying to tell Moses in that context is that he's always existed. He's always been. He always is. He didn't come into being. He's always been. He is uncaused. He is, he was never created. There has never been a time when God didn't exist. And he never needed anyone or anything to bring him into existence. Now, we also read from Psalm 102, and Psalm 102 tells us a variety of things, but in the portion we read, you have the psalmist reminding us that God's dominion is not something that's temporary. God's dominion is something that will also exist forever. The psalmist is describing God's throne. He's describing God's authority. And the authority of his throne stretches in every direction, and he will be remembered Throughout all generations, the psalmist reveals to us. Now, I realize that some contemporary philosophers have attempted to convince people that God is dead, but the Word of God tells us otherwise. God lives. God has always been alive. And God will never cease to exist. Now, Scripture also reveal, reveals to us that Jesus Christ, God the Son, is eternal in nature. He has eternally existed in perfect union with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 13, which we read from just a moment ago, that scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Meaning, even though he stepped into time, and even though he was born a man, even though he took on flesh, even though he united his divine nature with his human nature, he at no time stopped being God nor did he come into being at the time of his earthly birth. He existed beforehand, and Scripture reveals to us that he lives forever. And he even got in some trouble. Isn't it interesting when you read through the Gospels to see some of the things that Jesus did that actually irritated other people or that made them upset or that provoked them? Because when you look at the beginning of the story and when you look at how the Gospels unfold, you could see that Jesus was intentionally doing this. He was intentionally provoking certain people. He was intentionally irritating certain people. And, um, and it, it tells us that Jesus got into some trouble with some religious leaders during the time of his earthly ministry 
by telling them the truth, and the truth was this, that he had always existed. And obviously that was something that they didn't want to hear because they didn't believe in him. But when Jesus told them that he had always existed, that got him in some trouble. In John chapter 8, I want to read from verse 53, and then I want to uh, jump right to verse 58. But this is a conversation Jesus was having with some religious leaders at the time. And they said this to him. They said, are you greater? So picture the accusatory voices that they would be using as they say this to Jesus. But they look at him in John 8 and they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. That's what he said. Now, you can imagine um, how well that went over as Jesus said that, right? I mean, they looked at this, and, and frankly, when, when you look at the accusations that were brought against Christ when he was crucified, what was the ultimate accusation that was brought against him? That he claims to be God. They're saying he, he claims to be God. He's telling us he's God. And you have Jesus looking at the religious leaders and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they were irritated with this. They were furious. They wanted to kill him on the spot. If they thought they could get away with it, I'm certain that they would have. But I take comfort in the fact that God is eternal. And he's not constrained by the limits of time. And because time doesn't limit him like it limits you and me, he can see not only what has happened, but also what will happen. And when he gives us counsel, so consider this for just a moment. When he gives us counsel, we can be confident that the counsel that we're receiving is from one who has divine foreknowledge of the future. So when our Lord gives us counsel, he's giving us counsel as one who has divine foreknowledge of the future. He is eternal in nature. He exists outside of time, yet operates inside of time. And he gives us counsel, and he can see things that you and I can't see. So, you know, with that in mind, consider some of the roadblocks, or consider some of the unexpected changes that you've uh, experienced in regard to some of the plans that you've made during the course of your life. When those things happen, when those roadblocks come, or when those unexpected changes come, we can be confident that our God who knows what is best for us, our God who can see our futures, is working out all things for our benefit. I had an interesting experience several years ago. I want to say this maybe is about four or five years ago now. And my wife and I were trying to think about uh, just some investments and some things like that. And one of the things that we had uh, done in the past uh, before we moved down here to this area was we invested in some rental property. And we thought, maybe we ought to do that again. And so there was some property we were looking at, and we were thinking, let's we should invest in that. And we kind of uh, investigated it and looked at it, and we even had an inspector come. I paid $500 for an inspector to come and do a very thorough inspection of it. And we thought, all right, for sure, we're going to buy this investment property. And we began the process, and everything seemed like it was going fine. And then all of a sudden, things stopped going fine. And, um, and then, in the end, the seller just pulled out of it. 
He just pulled out of it. There was just a day he just decided to pull out. And I remember looking at it and I was like, okay, on paper, this all made sense. So I'm not certain why this whole deal just fell through, but it fell through. So if it, and it's outside of my control. There's nothing I could do to remake it uh, come to pass. And so I just remember sitting at my dining room table and just having a moment of acceptance where I thought, all right, there's obviously something I don't know that God in his foreknowledge, God who exists outside of time, can see something about this that I don't know, and this thing that made sense to all of us on paper is now not going to happen, so I guess I just need to be content that the day is going to come when I'll figure out why, or where he'll show me why. It's like, all right, I guess we're not buying this property. So we didn't buy the property. And um, time went on, and the seller actually ended up contacting me sometime after that, and he said, hey, I changed my mind. Any chance you'd buy it from me again? I was like, that ship has sailed. It's done now. Like, we're, we're done. we've moved on to other things in our life. But then over time, I began to realize that if we had gone in the, in the direction of buying that property, it really would have hurt us financially with some unexpected things that we didn't know were coming down the road. And I was like, oh, wow. So in that moment, I was disappointed that we didn't have the opportunity to, to, to buy that, but then also content that, well, this must be the Lord's will because this is outside of our control and there's nothing we could do, to then being extremely grateful that it fell through given enough time because we were able to see, no, that actually would have hurt us financially and it would have been very, very difficult for us to kind of reset the course if that actually went through. So it was one of those moments in the past few years where I was just very grateful for the foreknowledge of God, for the fact that God exists outside of time, and that God is eternal in nature, and that He extends the blessing of that attribute toward us in a variety of ways. Now, the Scripture also tells us, in addition to the fact that God is eternal, that God is also good. He is the perfection of goodness. Let me read for us from Luke chapter 18. Now, in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, it says this, and you have this, this individual who's speaking to Jesus in Luke chapter 18, and he comes up to Jesus, and he says this. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's how I think Jesus said that. It's like, hmm, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. Almost like, so are you saying that maybe I am, in fact, God in the flesh right here in front of you? That's from Luke chapter 18. So God's Word makes it abundantly clear to us that He is the perfection of goodness. He is perfect in His moral excellence. He is perfect in His virtue. He expresses His goodness toward us with the desire that we will likewise joyfully reflect His goodness in the way that we interact with one another. I also like what it tells us in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 17. It illustrates something about God's goodness that is easy to appreciate. And in that portion of Scripture, it tells us that every good and every perfect gift comes from God. The way James 1.17 phrases it is this. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
So what the Scripture is telling us is that God is the source of goodness, and He's the standard by which goodness is measured. And in His goodness, He chooses to bless us in all kinds of ways that we don't deserve. I don't deserve His blessings. You don't deserve His blessings. And He chooses to be good to us just the same. And in fact, just a kind of, you know, just by taking a, just a brief or just a quick look at our lives, it gives us many illustrations of the goodness of God all around us. And in fact, sometimes I think it's helpful just for us to look at the Lord and pray and to thank Him for His goodness, just to acknowledge the fact that, Lord, You are good to us. And one of the things that amazes me most uh, about God's decision to be good to us is that He chooses to be good to us, even though by nature we were set against Him as His enemies. Scripture tells us that we were not seeking Him. Scripture tells us that we loved evil. Scripture reveals to us that every inclination of our hearts, by nature, embraced that which was set against God. And yet God looked into that context, and He inserted Himself into that context by sending God the Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to show us His goodness and to rescue us from our wickedness. The very fact that God would choose to do this for us, I think it should foster just a healthy sense of security in our minds and a healthy sense of security in our hearts and in our lives because God isn't petty. You know, when He looks at you and when He looks at me, He could do whatever He wants to us. He doesn't even have to snap His fingers to make something happen, right? He could just, just declare it in His mind or declare it in His heart and it will be so. But God isn't petty. He doesn't toy with us for His amusement. He delights to show us His goodness because He knows that we will be blessed by this expression of His nature. And He also invites us to copy Him in regard to our relationships one with another. He invites me to be good to you and you to be good to me and you to be good to anyone that he places in your, in your life. And I have to tell you, over the past year, there's several relationships where effectively, I guess I could say, I've tested God in this. Meaning, because I've become aware of his goodness to me, and because I'm also aware that there are a few people in my life that I, I interact with, with some regularity, that really, there's not really like a, um, a casual or polite way to say this, I guess. There's a few people in my life that really excel at driving me crazy. Is that like the, is that the, I don't know if that's the polite way to say it. I could always edit the recording, you know. Um, but no, there's just a, and you, I know you have people in your life that are like that too. People that are work, right? People that are work to have to, to have to interact with. People that are just, maybe excessively difficult. There's just a couple people in my life that I feel are um, like they go overboard in how inconsiderate they can be. And when people react in that kind of way, um, it's kind of one of those things where you look at it and you're like, all right, uh, I could be mean to them. Uh, I could avoid them. I think actually in my context, that's probably what I tend to do the most with people like that if I'm really, really honest. I think sometimes I'm less likely to be mean to somebody, but maybe more likely to be 
avoidant toward them, at least to a degree. And over the past year, uh, I, I began praying about some of these circumstances, and I thought, all right, Lord, I don't want to just be somebody that just avoids somebody that, that uh, gets under my skin. Let, let me see, you know, like what does it look like for me to implement the goodness that you show to me, even though at one time I was dead set against you, and by nature was your enemy because of my sin nature, and yet you showed goodness to me. So what would it look like for me to reflect that goodness like a mirror to people in my life who don't make it easy to do so, right? Because there's people in your life and people in my life that are very easy to be good to because they're such a delight to be around. But what is it like to actually show goodness as an act of intention even when you feel like being more of, you know, avoiding somebody like that? And so I kind of put God to the test in a sense by implementing that and by showing goodness on purpose to these several people. And a curious thing began to happen. I watched as my perspective toward them improved. And I watched as I felt more compelled to notice what was going on in their lives. And I watched as my heart became more burdened to pray for them. And I kid you not, in every context, the relationship improved. And in two out of the three contexts that I'm thinking of in my mind and being purposely very anonymous, um, I would actually consider those, like two of those three people, legitimately good friends now. Whereas at one point, I really just considered them inconsiderate and more of a burden to have to interact with. And it was one of those things where the Lord had made me more and more conscious of His goodness that He shows to me even though I don't deserve it. And so how can I accept that from God and enjoy the benefits and blessings of His goodness toward me without extending that toward other people? People don't have to deserve goodness for us to be good toward them. We didn't deserve goodness when God has chosen to be good to us. And actually, I think understanding that God is the perfection of goodness and that He extends that, that attribute toward us as well, I think it actually changes the perspective we have on our day-to-day -day circumstances. Now, you're probably familiar with the verse I'm about to quote. It's one of the most frequently quoted verses of the Bible, and it's from Romans 8.28. And in Romans 8.28, it says this, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. That's what the Scripture tells us, that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. So that means that our good God, likewise, has good things in store for those who genuinely love Him. That means, in practical terms, that every circumstance, every trial, every awkward situation, every meeting, and every victory will be worked out by Him for our good. So that means, likewise, that you know, if, if He has called you unto Himself, that you can likewise be confident that He has a perfectly good plan for your life, and He's gradually unfolding it right before you. Now, we may not be able to see every last detail of that plan ahead of time, but God can. And in the midst of what we're experiencing, we can 
actively remind ourselves of the fact that God is good and that God is being good toward us. Now, that's challenging, isn't it? You know, in the midst of, you know, things going, uh, you know, in a direction that maybe isn't what we would have preferred, it's hard to remind ourselves that God is being good to us in those moments. But the Scripture tells us that He is being good to us in those moments. That He's working out all situations and all circumstances in your life and in my life. As men and women who profess that we love Him, He's working out all those situations for our good. That even means that if you're driving and your car breaks down in the middle of nowhere, that somehow you can be confident that it's for your good. And you may think in that moment, well, how is this for my good? Well, maybe you don't know it in the moment. Maybe you won't know it until you're in heaven. Maybe it's just a moment where the Lord says, hey, I'm just going to give you an opportunity to stretch your faith muscle. I'm just going to give you the opportunity to trust in me in the midst of a situation that seems a little bit difficult for you to trust in me. And that may be the good that comes out of this. But there are circumstances that you will experience and, and circumstances that I will experience over the course of our lives that in the moment will not feel good. But the Scriptures are true. And God, by nature, is good. And He tells us that He's working out the circumstances and situations of all of our lives as we trust in Him, as we genuinely love Him. Every circumstance of your life and every circumstance of my life is being worked out by Him for our good. You know when I became absolutely convinced of that? I became convinced of that in 10th grade in biology class. I was sitting in my biology class, and I wish I could tell you what we were studying, but I don't remember what we were studying, and I don't remember if it was maybe an appropriate time to take a mental break or if it wasn't. But I remember at that time, that was the season of my life where I started to become serious about my faith, and I started thinking about that concept. And thinking about how God works all circumstances together in our lives for, for good. And I thought, okay. And then I started thinking, uh, uh, trying to ask some tough questions in my mind and tough questions in prayer to him during that biology class. And one of the questions I asked related to my parents' divorce. The hardest thing for our family when I was growing up was when my parents got divorced. My life was totally different before and after completely different. Our day-to-day, where we lived, how our family was relating to one another, it was like literally somebody lit dynamite in my family growing up, and it blew up when I was eight years old. And I remember watching as some of that kind of settled, and then at age 15, I became serious about my faith in Christ, and I thought, okay, and it was kind of like, I didn't say it out loud, but I remember praying, all right, what good could possibly come out of my parents' divorce? What good could possibly come out of that? And I remember during the course of that class praying about that and thinking about it, but also still being bothered by it. And the Lord allowed me in my mind to start kind of tracing through the timeline of my life. And it's like, okay, well, think back. When your parents were married, you lived in Sturgis, Pennsylvania. And then you moved a bunch of times. And then you ended up in Carbondale, Pennsylvania. And when you ended up in Carbondale the person that your mother eventually remarried, his mother went to a church in the town of German, one town over. And she invited you and your siblings and your mother to go to church with her. And so you went to church with her. 
And while you were there at that church, that church suggested to your mother that you go to their summer camp. And your mother suggested it to you. And you didn't want to go, but she bargained with you, and so you went. And the church paid for you to go. And during the course of that week, you met me. Right? That's what the Lord was revealing to me. It's like, wait a second, that's right. That's how I came to know you in the midst of that mess. And how did I end up at that summer camp? Well, I wouldn't have ended up there if we didn't meet these people. And I began to realize, wait, this was the, the chain that the Lord started. And then I began to see what was happening there. And then the story continued. At that summer camp, I met some people that went to Philadelphia College of Bible. And they suggested to me that I check it out. And so my senior year of high school, I checked it out. And I went there because I liked it. And you know the main reason I chose going there? Because it was like camp in my mind. It reminded me of camp, at least the environment, the culture. We didn't have to take classes at camp. but. Um, and then while I was there, I met my wife. It's like, okay. And also... I got plugged in with the network of churches that that church in German was part of. And I wouldn't even be here if not for that chain of events because that's how I learned about our church here in Langhorne and the whole situation that it was in 10 years ago as it was shutting down and needed to be replanted. And I think back to it and I keep seeing this chain of events come back to that And so you can test God with that question. You can look at something and you can say, Lord, this was one of the most difficult moments or the most difficult moment of my life. What good could you possibly bring out of that? And I keep the the story keeps getting longer and longer and longer in my life as I watch how the Lord orchestrated certain things that totally upended my, you know, my day-to-day life, but he was more concerned with me coming to know him than he was concerned for my temporary comforts, if you know what I mean by that. Everything could have gone fine and smooth and maybe looked a little bit more like leave it to Beaver's life, right? Than that I, I, you know, which I would have preferred at the time. But in the end, what I ended up seeing was the Lord using difficult circumstances to call me and my siblings, and then eventually my dad and many other members of our family, unto himself. It's been fascinating to watch that trail unfold. I can tell you, as somebody who's dealt with some difficult things in my life in addition to that, that I still say God is good. I believe him. He is the perfection of goodness. And we can say that to him and believe that about him in the midst of whatever difficult circumstance we may be going through. God is good. One other thing that we're looking at this morning, and this is where I want to finish us up, is that in addition to God being eternal, and in addition to God being good, God is also perfectly gracious. He is the perfection of of grace. Let me read for us from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the Word of God also reveals to us that God is the source and He's the perfection of grace. Now, grace is a term that we use with, with some regularity, 
but we don't always define it. And basically what it means is grace is the giving of undeserved blessing or the giving of undeserved gifts. We could observe the grace of God at work in seemingly small ways in our day-to-day lives, but also in eternally significant ways. So when we think about what it did last night, last night it rained. So rain to water the ground, that's actually a gift of God's grace. Seeds that germinate into plants that produce food for us are a gift of God's grace. And by the way, if you haven't noticed them, uh, on the table in the back here, there's a whole bunch of zucchini bread and some very large zucchinis that Rose brought for us from her garden. And sometimes when we look at that stuff, we're like, oh yeah, it's the time of year for that. But really, when you look at that zucchini, if you're one of the people that gets to snatch some of it, some has walnuts in the bread and some doesn't. So note that if you have an allergy. I hope we get some. So you're sitting in the back, Andrea. Uh, Make sure you throw some elbows and grab some uh, on the way out. But just the same, when you look at, you know, seeds that can germinate into plants that we can eat for food, what is that? Well, that's a gift of God's grace, is it not? Natural resources that could be used to build shelter. That is a gift of God's grace. What's your house made out of? What's my house made out of? Wood. Where'd the wood come from? Right? God made it grow. God invented it by concept. Even the metal that goes into fastening our homes together. Natural resources that can be used to power transportation. It's a gift of God's grace. Some theologians refer to these examples as examples of God's common grace, meaning, you know, they use that term because it's like a a common grace that's experienced by anyone that's on the earth. It's an example of God's common grace. But the grace of God, so those would be examples of God's common grace, but the grace of God is extended toward us in very eternally significant ways as well, specifically our salvation. Our salvation is a gift of God's grace. We were lost in sin. We were being crushed under a debt that we did not have the capacity to repay. We were infected with unrighteousness, and we were doomed to spend eternity under the wrath of God. But God, in His grace, provided for our salvation through Jesus Christ. The work was done for us. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus paid for our freedom. Jesus paid for our forgiveness. And now as we trust in Him, we become recipients of His gift of salvation, a gift of grace. Hebrews 4.16 says something interesting because it describes God's throne. So picture God ruling and reigning. And the image that we have in our mind is this idea of a throne that a king, that a ruler would reign from. And it describes that throne as a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. So with grace, God rules and reigns over His creation. With grace, God intervenes in our day-to-day lives. Because He's so gracious toward us, He invites us to come before His throne in prayer with confidence because He delights to help us in the midst of our times of need. He delights to show us His grace. He's ready to bless us in ways that we don't deserve as we, as we trust in Him, as we walk with Him, as we communicate with Him daily. Now, sometimes we're tempted in life to grumble because... Maybe we feel like we aren't getting what we deserve. I have a friend 
who uh, recently commented that her husband deserves a new car. That's what she said. He deserves a new car. So you don't know this family, um, but does he deserve a new car? You know, what, what if he didn't get one, right? Well, if he doesn't get one, should he be upset if he didn't get the new... By the way, he did get the new car. And, um, and she said, yeah, he deserves it. He deserves the new car. So in general, do we deserve nice things? Do we deserve good weather? Um, <laughs> do we deserve tasty food? You know, we des- do we deserve a life that's free from conflict or a life that's free from adversity? No. We don't deserve any of those things. If God actually gave us what we deserved, we would be devastated. We broke fellowship with God back in the Garden of Eden, and since that time, we deserved nothing more than His wrath. That's the only thing we deserve from God. So we shouldn't grumble when we're inconvenienced. We shouldn't grumble when we aren't treated like a king or a queen. We shouldn't grumble when the sky is cloudy or when the power goes out or when our food tastes bland. Instead, we should be grateful for any common grace that the Lord extends toward us, so the oxygen we're allowed to breathe, the shelter that protects us from the weather. We should likewise be grateful for the eternally significant acts of grace that God's given us, meaning He's given us hope beyond our current circumstances, and He he rules from a throne of grace And He's chosen to bless us in more ways than we can count. And we didn't deserve a single one of these blessings. But God, by nature, is the perfection of grace. I love what the Apostle Paul tells us about the grace of God. This is what he tells us. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Again, my grace is sufficient for you. That's what the Lord reveals to us, that His grace is sufficient for us in the midst of all we experience. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. God's grace truly is sufficient for us. God's goodness is inspiring to us. God's eternality is comforting to us. And today, and let me just say this as we finish up, as we meditate on these attributes of God, let's be thankful that He's chosen to bless us as the beneficiaries of these perfections. Because again, the only thing we deserved from Him was His wrath. The only thing we deserved from Him was eternal separation. But God, in His grace, interjected Himself into our circumstances and chose to rescue us. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to this earth, lived the perfect life, died death in our place, rose from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death. And as an act of grace, He extends the gift of salvation toward us. And all we need to do is trust in Him to receive it. We don't have to earn it. It would stop being a gift if we had to earn it or deserve it. And he says, you can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You don't want what you can earn. You don't want what you can deserve. It wouldn't be good for you. But God, in the perfection of His goodness, God, in the perfection of His grace, has extended grace to us. And He offers us the gift of salvation through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And then likewise, 
as men and women who have been blessed to be created in the image of God, and I'll say this as we finish, He gives us the privilege to live eternally. God, who is eternal, gives us the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Our God is eternal. Our God is good. Our God is gracious. I don't know what you're experiencing right now. I don't know if you're dealing with difficulty or adversity or if everything feels like it's going exactly like you hoped it would. But whatever circumstance you're in, I hope that you could say with confidence, just like the Apostle Paul was able to say, that God's grace is sufficient for us, and that likewise, as we think about God, think about who He is and what He does, that we could look at Him and say, just like James said in James chapter 1, that ultimately God is good. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. And like the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, that God is working out all circumstances for the good of those who love Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the privilege to be able to trust in You and to walk with You and to live with You and to have hope in You. Lord, again, we recognize that we don't deserve a single good thing from You. The only thing we deserved from You was Your wrath. We deserved condemnation. We deserved eternal separation from You. But Lord, You chose to be good to us. You chose to extend mercy toward us. You chose to show us Your grace. And because of the work that Your Son, Jesus Christ, has accomplished on our behalf, now through faith in Him, we can receive the gift. We can receive the blessing of eternal life because it's already been paid for for us. It's already been secured for us. So Lord, thank You for giving us a future in Your presence. Thank You for being present with us right now. And we thank You, Lord, that in the midst of every experience we go through, that we can thank You that You are absolutely good. Even if we're going through things that right now puzzle us, these are things that we can be assured of. Even when we trace back just the timeline of our lives and look back over things that in the moment were painful or difficult, we thank you, Lord, that you transform our thinking and you give us a brand new perspective. And you allow us to start seeing things from your eyes. So, Lord, thank you for giving us a bigger view of things. And, Lord, again, we commit each and every one of us unto you and pray that you'd help us to trust you in the midst of the adversities we may presently experience, knowing, again, that you are gracious and good. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all of these things. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.